The takeaway message is that perhaps a quarter or a third of all the CO2 that you emit as a result of your time here on the planet is emitted not by uh, breathing out or by burning fuel in your car or even by using electricity that comes out of a socket. It's emitted by the things that you buy, by the mobile phone that you buy, the laptop that you buy, the car that you buy, the clothes that you buy. And paying more attention to this is really, really important if people are serious about sustainability. The industry has got into a habit of expecting people to upgrade their machines every few years and they've built their business models on that. Somehow or another, we've got to get past this. We've somehow got to get to a world in which your smartphone lasts for 10 years or perhaps even 20 years. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for the Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. In 2020, mobile phones are an integral and constant part of our lives. In some ways, we are totally dependent on them and we need them to be near us and functioning. But at the same time, we often ignore them. We are often unaware of the way that they are made, their impact on the planet, how they are designed, how they work, and what to do when they fail. This month, as part of the European Right to Repair campaign, activists are mobilising across Europe to try and push Brussels to focus on regulating smartphones. It's a rallying cry that calls out, let our phones live longer. So in today's episode, we're making the case for why we need to take urgent action. We'll be diving into the issues with a selection of clips from our archive of podcasts where people are making the argument for the right to repair. We'll be talking to all kinds of experts, from Professor Ross Anderson, whose voice you heard at the beginning of the show, to Rico Serva, a young repairer who can fix the impossible. We'll hear from designers, geographers and academics and everyday people who've come to restart parties to try to fix their phones. And we'll hear from members of the Restart Project team, both reflecting on the landscape of our technology and in one case sharing a personal story of frustration with how manufacturers restrict access to spare parts and make DIY repair incredibly hard. Listen in and if you're listening from a smartphone you may never see it in the same way again. I'll mention this URL again at the end of the episode, but if you want to get involved in fighting for the right to repair, go to repair.eu forward slash smartphones. At the base level, the topic of repair becomes relevant when our products break. It seems that in our lives, products breaking or becoming obsolete is an increasingly frequent occurrence. But our individual ability to fix them is becoming more uncommon. Over the course of this show, we will explore why this is. But for now, let's start at the beginning with the design process. 
Two years ago, I sat down with Leila Ajaralu to talk about the normalization of unethical design practices. She spoke about her dream that a less wasteful electronics industry can come into existence through more responsible design methods. I think that design is one of the only powerful social influencing professions that doesn't have a code of ethics or conduct that forces them to make responsible decisions about the things that they produce, create and influence the world through. Normalization of unethical practices is how we end up with planned obsolescence and huge waste globally. Designers need to get better at making repair manuals and thinking about disassembly at the production stage. There's like the eco-design strategies that were developed like 20 years ago, which is still extremely valuable, design for disassembly, design for modularity, design for repairability. Like there's simple strategies that you can apply to the design process at the concept stage, designing for holistic products that fit within the world so they can be fully repaired or replaced or remodulated, but they fit within a complex ecosystem. Like who doesn't want to design things like that? Way more interesting than making something locked up that no one can get into. Like how do we make this more impossible for someone to open? Like, oh, what fun I had at work today. It's all about building bridges and creating common narratives around things. And a lot of the time, linguistics makes it very difficult. So when you use acronyms and things that are very complicated for those of us who don't know how to tinker, pull apart and repair, you kind of create a little microsystem that disables external forces. Making things more accessible is really important on either side here, you know, like from from the people who are doing repair and the people who are also creating the products. Back in 2015, on our second ever podcast, I interviewed product designer Barry Wadalove, who filled me in on the changing face of product endurance. I think a lot of people have the expectation when they buy a product that it's going to last. And they think that they're buying something because it's going to make life convenient and more enjoyable for them. And it'll be something that they'll always have to do whatever the purpose of that product is. Right. And part of the goal is that, yes, it needs to be visually appealing, but every aspect of the use of that product needs to be easy, simple to understand, successful in terms of doing the jobs that you need it to do, easy to maintain... And the likelihood is that if it's all of those things, people will use it more and become more attached to it. I think that there's been an awful lot of design geared to selling products fast. And often it's about, you know, that fleeting moment of the point of purchase and just convincing somebody to take something off a shelf. I know that a lot of people buy products don't use the product much at all and then may even throw it away if it becomes redundant in some way. There are many reasons that people throw things away, but it's creating a a huge amount of landfill that's a, a really big problem. And it's not just the problem of landfill, it's the fact that all of those materials and all of that effort that's gone into creating the product is being abandoned and arguably there's still a lot of value in the actual materials themselves or in the product if it was just fixed or or if it was serviced or if there were ways to keep these products going then people would have a better relationship with their products I think. They don't have as much of a connection with products as they used to so there's 
less of an inclination to try and keep something. It's a natural progression that people will no longer be willing to be shut out of their products. Yes, we like things to be sleek, but we want to be able to keep those things. It seems that consumer desire for our phones to be sleek has not disappeared. Talking about the miniaturization of mobiles and other consumer electronics in 2016, the Restart team considered the fact that a compromise needs to be made between the aesthetics and the functionality of our smartphones. An issue that still hinders our individual ability to understand and repair our devices. So that really speaks to this race to miniaturization, this notion that, well, what's so-called Moore's Law, the idea Mm -hmm. that storage is getting better and better, that things would become smaller and that consumers would continue to seek out smaller and smaller things. This race towards miniaturization really has driven a lot of innovation, we could say, but also there is a dark side. Since devices have become more screen-based, since touchscreens, essentially, the drive towards miniaturization has moved towards thin and skinny, mm-hmm. so our devices have gotten flatter. They've pancaked out, in a sense. Also because at the same time, while we want them skinnier and skinnier, at the same time we seem to want them with larger and larger screens, mm-hmm. right? Which require larger batteries. Yeah. And there is this insane drive for higher and higher specs of the screens, the higher resolutions, which you couldn't tell unless you glued them to your eyes, mm. the difference, right? And so... Where is this heading? I mean, we've said it before, but it's reaching a point where it it can't really go on much further. It does seem like consumers are a little bit confused about what they want. I mean, I think that the manufacturers are in somewhat of a bind in the sense that people, they say they want a battery life. They want the bigger screen. We want it all. And that's Mm -hmm. part of the problem is that there's not enough kind of awareness that there is a bit of a trade off. Since that discussion took place in 2016, how much has changed in terms of consumer desires and the way that mobiles are being designed and built? The answer seems to be not much. If anything, our mobile phones are continuing to get smaller and smaller. While there are companies like the Dutch manufacturer Fairphone who specialise in making phones which use sustainable materials and promote repairability through their modular design, most major mobile manufacturers continue to move towards thin at all costs. Near the end of 2018, I spoke to Rico Server, a repairer who fixes the impossible, including iPhones. And we spoke about the hurdles that manufacturers have built into their products to stop efficient repair. What are the main barriers caused by phone manufacturers for your work? Have you been able to develop a good relationship with phone manufacturers? I haven't been and got no relationship with manufacturers. Barriers... If Apple released the schematics to the public, then that would have helped us a lot. For example, the iPad Pro 12.9 inch and the 9.7. For two years, the 12.9 inch has been out. We still haven't seen them schematic. The schematics are found over the internet. Someone has leaked them somewhere. If Apple had to provide the schematics to everybody, 
life would be easier. That's also in that right to repair bill that people are doing yeah. right now. The right to repair bill is so that Apple could release all these diagnostic tools and schematics. They're not giving you the information about how the devices work. And I guess another barrier that you've kind of mentioned is that some elements, like you were saying about buttons, can't be replaced. They can only be fixed. That seems like quite a barrier in its own way too. It is, yes. Only Apple has the ability to program a new button. Very similar to charge leads, changing the plugs so that like, you can only use Apple plug charge leads and you can't just use a, a simple USB charger like it used to be at one point. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting that when they change the, the plugs, we all notice it, right? But when they change the buttons, we don't know that they've done that. Are there simple changes in the way that manufacturers operate that would make your work easier? Is it about the ways that phones are designed or or is it software tools that are missing? There could be software tools in the future, but as I said, we don't have much information. If they release schematics, that would change us. Right. That's the the main thing that you want from manufacturers. And pre, I guess there's no sign that they're prepared to do that unless they're forced. Unfortunately not, no. That's that right repair bill that they're doing here. The Right to Repair campaign is a burgeoning global movement that is asking for products to be repairable by design and for access to spare parts and repair documentation. In short, the demand is for good design, fair access and informed consumers. At our restart parties, the repair events that the Restart Project puts on. Over the years on the podcast, we've heard firsthand how difficult phone manufacturers have made it for consumers to repair their devices at home or even at an independent repair shop. Is it necessary really that they use such specialised screws? Why do they do all these different specifications, pentagons and whatever else? It's just, to, just to cause like some resistance in you getting into it. it just, it's to they, stop you, isn't yeah. it? It's to stop repairing. That's what it's about. It's, yes. Well, it's, it's to stop the average Joe from repairing it. Yeah. Without proper research, you could potentially damage the but warranty. But I think you're always taking it at your responsibility, aren't you, once you start opening something. And what's that kind of orange tool for us? So we've got a, a plunger to, to help lift the screen up. The only two things that are holding it down are the, the two pentalobe screw, screws at the bottom. People don't have that, though, do they, at home? I don't think they do have that range of, of screwdriver heads, and, and definitely not this plunger thing. I've never seen one of those before, I don't think. It's for taking the screen off a mobile phone, a smartphone. It's just a bit too wide. And that, that goes to show how specific the tools are, right, for smartphones. That would work for a different yeah. smartphone, but not this one. I think they have their own specific plunger tool that they've created for it, which has plungers on both sides, almost like a, a pair of pliers with, yeah. with plungers on the end of it that pull them apart. But you can, you can use other, other sort of plungers. It's just a little bit more tricky. In the early days of the podcast, co-founder of the Restart Project, Ugo, recorded his experience of repairing his own phone and found that there was no straightforward way to get Sony to repair his phone even if he paid to send it to them. As such he had to navigate as many of us do the complicated and rather opaque world of DIY phone repair. The dilemma is that you'd like to buy a part that will extend not just the life of the device but also how much you enjoy it so it continued to operate the same way as you're used to and so you are left wondering should I buy the part that is genuine and costs potentially a hundred pounds 
which is $150. It's a lot of money for the part. Or could I buy a part that costs about £50? Or should I buy a part that's sold at £25? If you get a part that's not the right part, exact same part, it might be that this affects the battery life of the device. And so you start feeling like the device is not good anymore. So maybe it is worth spending a little bit more to get the right part. But it's the kind of thing that until you try you can't tell whether you've done the right thing or not. I understand that it's not sustainable for most people to have to go through the lottery of trying to figure out exactly what part to use. And that's why we need to make it easier for people. And, uh, you know, we need better standards in a way so that good and tested uh, parts can stand out and providers of them can stand out. But we also need to make sure that when a part is sold, it is sold together with the instructions to mount it. Unless you have access to another phone, you might have to give up. And I can appreciate that people out of desperation sometimes might just end up buying a new thing just because they can't find a solution to their problem. It is not only the way that manufacturers build the devices themselves, the hardware, that makes them difficult to repair. It is also the software that is installed on them. Even if your phone doesn't physically break, it is up to the manufacturer to continue updating your software to keep the device running. Ross Anderson, a professor in security engineering at Cambridge University, spoke to us about his frustration with the issue of software obsolescence and how something that should be expected of manufacturers is becoming harder and harder to come by. The issue here is how you can go about signalling to people who are buying products in the shops that a certain product may become useless after five years or uh, ten years. Let me give you an example. I've got a Google Nexus 5X mobile phone, and Google has announced that it's going to stop making security patches available in September this year. Now, that's less than three years since I bought it, and I think it's actually rather outrageous that I pay £600 for a product and I get less than three years' service out of it. In future, I think we need laws which would compel companies to guarantee a certain life cycle and make that clear in the packaging. I mean, you wouldn't go and buy a car if the brochure said this car is going to have to be thrown on the scrap in six years' time, would you? The industry has got into a habit of expecting people to upgrade their machines every few years, and they've built their business models on that. And so although there's no particular reason why a laptop bought five or ten years ago shouldn't still be perfectly serviceable. The industry wants us to keep on replacing them because that's what its assumptions and its business practices are built around. Somehow or another, we've got to get past this. We've somehow got to get to a world in which your smartphone lasts for ten years or perhaps even twenty years. You only have to repair your laptop when the keyboard wears out. And even then, you should be able to get a new keyboard. So the takeaway message is that perhaps a quarter or a third of all the CO2 that you emit as a result of your time here on the planet is emitted not by uh, breathing out or by burning fuel in your car or even by using electricity that comes out of a socket. It's emitted by the things that you buy, by the mobile phone that you buy, the laptop that you buy, the car that you buy, the clothes that you buy. And paying more attention to this is really, really important if people are serious about sustainability. And sustainability is the motto that people should be using when they say, now hang on a minute, Mr. Google, 
Are you seriously telling us that Larry and Sergey don't have enough money that you can't afford to maintain three versions of Android, and so you're going to make my phone obsolete after two and a half years, despite the fact that it's still working perfectly well? That's the hard question that you should put to Eric Schmidt if you ever run into him in a lift, right? He may talk about how he's making all his data centers green, about he's building a new data center in Finland that will run entirely off hydroelectricity. Yeah, yada, yada, yada. Sure, Eric, we believe that. But what you've got to do is you've got to keep on shipping patches for Android, not for three years, not for five years, but for 10 years. Then we'll believe, Mr. Google, that you really actually do care about sustainability. The ability to repair our phones is vital in reducing waste. It minimises the quantity of devices that are being produced. While the supply of new mobile phones seems to be unlimited with nearly 2 billion sold every year, they contain components that are becoming increasingly scarce. We interviewed Jessica Luth Richter, a circular economy researcher at Lund University, about what our phones are made of and why we need to conserve their components. Can you walk us through what CRMs are contained in those smartphones? Where are they likely to come from? So like in the screen, we have the indium tin oxide, which is helping to make a touch screen. So anything with a touch screen is going to be using indium and tin, which are critical materials. Other places where you can find it also in the screen are rare earth elements again. And the thing with, with certain rare earth elements like yttrium, europium, terbium, is that they will help make the screen bright and these in these colors. And these colors are also important for other applications like your TV. Then to make a, a smartphone mobile and to make anything mobile, you need batteries and you'll find critical materials in the batteries. We maybe have heard about cobalt and cobalt mining as well. So cobalt is in batteries. We hear about lithium a lot, but it's actually not on the EU list. It's on the US list for critical materials. So again, it depends on what the actual supply risks and where different regions are getting the lithium and what they're using it for as to whether they see it as a critical material. But lithium is in the batteries. Cobalt can be in the batteries as well. And cobalt, generally, we're looking at it's coming from the the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And the rare earths I already mentioned, but the rare earths that I talked about on the screen are coming from China generally. In the electronics, we have lots of different critical materials as well. So in some of the wiring and components like the microcapacitors, you have tantalum, which is generally coming from Rwanda and surrounding countries. In the microphone, you have some more of the rare earths as well. And in the vibrator, anything that has a vibrating system also has some tungsten which is a, a critical material. And tungsten generally is coming from China, but also from Russia. And then in the, in the chips, the electronic chips, and this is for basically anything with chips, you can have uh, silicon metal, phosphorus, gallium, and antimony all coming from China generally as well. So you're seeing a recurring theme to where things are coming from in terms of critical materials. And even the casing of a phone, you might see magnesium which can also be a critical material in the list and also 
mainly from China. When you consider that these are critical materials and that we're talking about uh, supply may be disrupted and it's hard to get supply from elsewhere, it probably comes as no surprise that there is little recycling of a lot of these materials. There's different reasons for why the recycling rate is so low. There's several issues to it. One is that a lot of these materials, when I went through the materials in a smartphone, they're in different parts of the smartphone in very small amounts. So we have very small amounts of rare earth in the screens. We have very small amount of rare earths in different parts. What happens when we're, when we're recycling is often we're recycling in a way that we are trying to make it convenient. So we're recycling lots of different electronics together. And the recycling processes, what they generally do at the moment, at least in the EU, is shredding as a first step just to get some kind of materials in there and start separating out the metals. And what we've been good at recycling in the past are things like gold, things like aluminium, and we know how to recycle those, we know how to get those out. And that's still what we're, what we're going for and what we know has value. So that's still what recycling processes are tuned for. The problem is when we, when we take lots of things, mix them together, and then shred them, what we're doing is, is taking all those rare earths that are in different places, mixing them even more, in one step and then shredding and dissipating them over our entire stock there. So we're losing these rare earths and other critical materials in that step. It's not only the critical materials used in our smartphones that impacts the planet. It's also their carbon footprint. While we as users may be aware of the carbon we use by charging and using our phone, we aren't as aware of the massive amounts of carbon that go into creating them in the first place. Years ago, Craig Jones explained to me just how important it is to consider the environmental impact that the production of phones have. From my understanding of things, there's a lot more carbon footprint gets created before you get the product than, than I thought. Yes, you know? absolutely. Possibly even a lot more than actual use sometimes, I think, depending on, on what the thing is. Some type of electrical devices, the main carbon footprint hotspot is the production of the materials. So I have in front of me some data for an Apple iPhone 6. And it has here the total carbon footprint to make the iPhone 6 which is 95 kilograms of CO2. And for the iPhone 6, the in-use phase, the in-use energy, it's just 11% of the carbon footprint over the full lifetime of, of the iPhone 6. What this means is for this device, repairing an old phone and getting extra lifetime out of it rather than sending it for recycling and getting a brand new shiny phone is the best environmental thing to do in this case because the in-use phase for this product is a, just 11% of the full life cycle. As technology progresses, the energy consumption of most things comes down. This result here is really interesting because it, it suggests that it's probably more of a product-by-product product case, but there's many devices out there that even though the new version consumes less energy, it's still worth repairing and using for as long as you can from a carbon footprint perspective because a really high amount of impact is produced in making the materials and assembling the product and shipping it and getting it into your hands. Actually, when you start to make things really small, there's large amounts of energy often used to make the lighter materials and the tiny little components and things. So when you start to shrink things down a lot, I think that you can add extra carbon to make that product. This little smartphone in your hand, considering how, how light 
it weight is, it's it's one of the highest carbon footprint things that I assess in my in my role, in my profession, in my job, if you like. While the overall carbon footprints may have slightly decreased since we talked to Craig, the proportions have remained the same, concentrated in production, with the idea that the carbon footprint of our phones is largely found in the production process in mind, the huge numbers that we produce becomes a really big concern. Without the support from manufacturers to repair our broken electronics easily, or even at all, the demand for them increases. Associate Professor in Geography Josh Lepowski acknowledged this in his conversation with me about electronic discards. The fact that it is becoming easier and quicker to mass-produce mobiles, which, of course, is an advantage for the manufacturers, doesn't mean that we should be doing so, and certainly not at such an increasing pace. You would think efficiency would be our saviour, as it were, reducing the material and energy footprint of our industrial economies. But the paradox here is that as things have become more and more efficient, people or companies or industries that were using less of that material in the past because it was more expensive can now afford to use more because it's cheaper to use it. So as efficiency increases, we get actually increasing aggregate demand. Efficiency is actually a trap that we have to watch out for very carefully. We need to be thinking not solely in terms of efficiency, but sufficiency. How much is enough, right? right? No matter how much post-consumer recycling we do, that will not do anything to solve where most of the waste from electronics comes from, which is in the mining of the materials and the manufacturing of the objects, before you and I even buy them. Listening back to these episodes, it seems clear that the problems with phones lasting only two to three years have been evident for years. Many of these interviews should feel dated. But sadly, they all feel pretty current. For all of the innovation and investment that is put into these products, very little of that goes towards helping people and helping the planet. I'm reading this narration off my smartphone, and as much as in many ways I have a love-hate relationship with my phone, a big part of it is love and I'm absolutely dependent on it, whether I love it or hate it. But that's one phone. For the past couple of years, two billion mobiles have been manufactured per year. It's a big business, and our production, use and disposal of these products has a massive impact at scale. Companies will not act out of altruism to change things. So it must be time for us to all take action, which is what Europe is doing now. If pretty much everybody has a smartphone and smartphones are collectively doing so much damage, it's up to all of us to try and improve that situation. If you want to be a part of that, if you want to increase the pressure on these companies to give us a right to repair, go to repair.eu 
forward slash smartphones and get involved. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at the restartproject.org. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Optone Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's new communications assistant, Holly, who did the research and planning for this episode. And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.